When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of AMA. I am your host, Tom Bilyeu, and I'm gonna be answering your questions. If you ever wanna submit a question, by the way, you can submit them to connect at impacttheory.com. The amazing and talented Chase will be selecting questions that are the most amazing and hopefully the most helpful. So submit away. All right, without further ado, the first question comes from Anonymous. I'm working in a company where the majority of my colleagues are millennials. In the last year, we've encountered a lot of resignations and we are out of ideas about what we could do to change the situation. Even with applying radical truth and transparency, nothing changed. After several months of working on a project and encountering so-called boring tasks, which sometimes have to be done, they just purely surrender and move on. The lack of grit is present, but you can't find only gritty people. This is the truth. The idea of just letting them go bothers us and we want to change this to be more complicated. The company is located in, in an area with a lot of competitors. Any ideas how to proceed? Yes, I have a lot of ideas. Okay, so first of all, I want to address the thing that you were saying about um, even after introducing radical truth and transparency that it didn't help. Now, I've lived that nightmare and trying to institute it after the fact is brutally difficult. You've already established the company culture. There's going to be a lot of momentum to that and you're going to have to, if you really wanna change the, the culture of your company, you're going to have to first present what the new culture is, then show through your actions and the actions of the management exactly the truth of your statements that whatever shift it is that you wanna make, you are making and you're making it hardcore. There is a famous story about Bill Gates um, making this huge announcement to the company that, hey, we've gotten off track in terms of the internet, this thing is getting away from us and now we're really gonna double down and there was something, I forget, there was some big project that they were gonna do and they pitched it and he came in and said, you've gotta start over on this entire project and start with the internet uh, in mind. And people thought he was crazy because there was so much time, energy, and money that he was throwing away by making them start over. And he said, I want people to understand this is really the truth. Like we are putting the internet first. And it wasn't until moments like that that people really started to believe that it was true. When you're trying to change your company culture to one of radical truth and transparency, people are not gonna buy it. Not only have they been trained at your own company that that's not true, they've been trained their entire lives both in a work environment and outside of a work environment that telling the truth just isn't what people do. So they're going to have a very hard time to acclimate to that change. You're gonna to have to be consistent. I know from personal experience that it is really hard, even if you're the one driving it, it's really hard to be consistent. So changing a company culture is ridiculously difficult. Second, everybody, whether millennials or not, are motivated most powerfully by five things. One of those things is money. One of those things is autonomy. One is a desire for mastery. And so let's go over those because I think they're the three lesser. I'm gonna get to the two really big ones. So the first one, money, yes, it's gotta be there and people have to see an opportunity to grow or most people won't stay. But I find that that's probably the one that motivates the least number of people in terms of being a primary motivator. The next one, autonomy. Nobody wants to be a puppet on the strings. So you want to put people in a position where they can make choices, where they can really see their efforts um, 
come to fruition in a way that they are self-directed, that they are self-guided, that they get to take ownership of themselves. I think that's a really big deal and is something that people often overlook. Uh, and micromanaging is the fastest way to kill that. And then the next one is a desire for mastery. I think that innately humans have a desire to get great, but not if they're being treated like a puppet. So if they have that autonomy, then you can spark their desire to really get good at something. In fact, I'm sitting right next to my man Chase, who's a prime example of somebody who has gotten better and faster at learning and getting better. The more we've given him responsibility, the more we've set the bar and said, now go figure it out. And that's been something because now he gets to take ownership of it because he's not just a pair of hands. He's really able to adapt and grow into that. And he's the most fucking millennial person you're ever going to meet. So seeing him do that and seeing him grit it out um, is is really amazing. And so a lot of that has come through that communication and talking to him, and I'm sure at the beginning, um, just as I was horribly clumsy at Radical Truth and Transparency, he was as well, but we work through that. Um, you keep going, you recognize it as a process. So those are the, the sort of easy three. Now the other two, which are really massive drivers for people, are a desire for purpose and a desire for meaning. So people need to know purpose, that what they're doing matters to the company and they need to know in what way it matters. So they need to see that all of this energy that they're putting into the company that really matters. And so I'm guessing if you're hemorrhaging employees that it's because they don't feel a sense of purpose. They don't see how what they're doing really matters to the company or worse, they don't know why it matters. And so focusing on those two things, my gut instinct tells me that's what you need to be focusing on. So meaning in your company, what are you guys doing? What's your mission? And are you communicating that to the team? And are they buying into it? And I will just tell you right now, this is the hard truth. This is me giving you radical transparency and honesty. If you're hemorrhaging employees, almost certainly you're violating one or all of those five things, most especially purpose and meaning. And this is where I find people, even if they're doing the other things right, even if you have good HR policies and even if people feel well taken care of, in this day and age, in an area where there are a lot of competitors, if they don't feel like what you're doing means something, brings value to the world, then they're going to burn out and they're going to move on and you're going to see that kind of high turnover. And if they don't see purpose and they don't feel a sense of meaning in your company and you're struggling with the other three things, then you're gonna see that kind of turnover. And I think really looking at the rate of your turnover is, it doesn't tell the whole story, but it's definitely a good place to start. Um, and then now, and I'm being way indulgent in this answer, but this is something I think so much about, I can't even begin to tell you. If you wanna build a really amazing company, you've got to do the following. You've gotta make it a rad place to be, and some of that radness comes from emotional safety. And this isn't something that we talk a lot about in the world of business, but I'm telling you right now, when people invest in each other, when they feel that they have allies surrounding them, when they feel like uh, there aren't frenemies in the company, when they're connected and they feel supported and they feel that they have that safe space, that if something goes wrong in their life, that the company is gonna be there and that the company is going to invest in them before they ask uh, the employee to invest back in the company. So I'll give you an example. Let's say, God forbid, someone in your company, someone in their family has uh, a lingering illness or even a sudden death. 
What are you going to do? How do you treat them in those moments, knowing that they're going to absolutely drop the ball on what they're working on? Do you race to create that safe space where they feel good, where you are telling them, do not worry about the company right now. I want you to think about you. I want you to think about your family. I want you to go take care of them. We're going to rally around you. And if in that moment, oh, I really hope this comes across. If in that moment, when it hurts your company and it hurts them because of what they're going through, if everybody in the company gets excited to be there for them and thinks, I want to invest in this person and protecting them and giving them that space to process, to grieve, to whatever it is that they're going through, if they're excited to do that, to help that person, and they're not thinking, oh God, this is going to make my email back up. And they're thinking, I really want to do that for them. I really want to be there for them. Then you've won. Then you've created the right kind of environment. But if at that moment, People are thinking, oh man, my email's gonna back up. Oh man, we're not gonna close that deal. If, if that is the, the primary thought, then the, the environment is not what I'll call emotionally safe. It, it isn't people that trust each other and wanna go to bat for each other and wanna do awesome things for each other. It is hard as hell to create that. And I've misstepped a thousand times in my life, so please know this is coming from a place of compassion. I'm not. When I say it is easy to get this wrong, it is so much easier to get it wrong even with good intentions. But if you focus as fiendishly on creating that kind of environment where each employee thinks of themselves as a teammate and wants to help the other teammates in times of trouble, in times of hardship, in times of joy, everything. They want to support each other. Then you're going to weather this. Then you're not going to see that kind of turnover because what people want is to connect They want to feel like they matter. They want to know that they have a sense of purpose. When you give them all of that, they're going to stay, man. I'm telling you, grit isn't going to solve the problem because even gritting it out in a company that you don't believe in, that doesn't invest in you, where you don't feel connected, where it's full of frenemies and, oh, it's misery, man. And the fastest way to hate your life is to hate your job. And yet, all people think about usually are the logistics, the the mechanisms of the job instead of, What do we like about our friends and family and how can we make the company feel like an extended family that holds each other to a crazy high standard? This is not me saying like, hey, you're my family and so you have a forever job. It is not that. We hold each other here at Impact Theory to a ridiculously high standard of excellence. But at the same time, we support each other. All right, I could literally do an entire episode about this. I'm gonna stop there. But that is why I think you have high turnover. And the great news is you can fix it and you will have every faith. All right, Sam K, I'm current, I currently work full-time in an industry I have no passion for. I have found my passion in programming and have studied full-time at night while working full-time to get the qualifications I need. How do I transition into switching industries and monetizing my passion? So first of all, it starts by you reducing your expenses down to the quick. So you want to not need to be making a lot of money. And what that's going to allow you to do is go find the right job in your new industry, one where you can rapidly get Um, more knowledge so that you're really learning and doing things that matter in the company. And then second, that you're making connections. So I think it is far more powerful to go and intern, even if you're 50, to go intern for 90 days somewhere in the industry that you want to be working in and show them how badass you are and how much you've learned, how hard you work, how much you're focused, how driven you are, how much you make the place a better place to be. If you do that, 
then you'll be able to get a job that really matters because getting in the door, that's the hard part. But once you get in the door through something like an internship or go watch the movie, oh God, what's it called? It's like Brewster and Brewster, that's not it. Oh man, Dustin Hoffman, where uh, he goes and takes a job. I am so forgetting the name of this movie. No, no, no. He goes and takes a job in an advertising agency and he takes a job that he's way overqualified for. And he says, you know what? Look, give me this job. I will prove myself. I will work myself to the bone. I need this job. Um, and so he takes a job that's well below his sort of resume skill set and just shows people how amazing he is and works his way up. He, and he just wants to get his foot in the door. So doing that, I think, is um, really, really a powerful strategy if you're trying to switch industries. So get in there, show people what you're made of, but not being afraid to take less money. Um, that's always key. All right. Next up is from Yannick Konecki. Konek. One of those. Just wanted to ask if there are any books you've read recently that should be on your reading list. I've read every book on the list and I'm curious what else is there to put my mind into. Thanks in advance. All right, well, I'll give you some books that I'm reading. Um, they're not on the list because I don't think that they're universal enough. Um, one that I was really blown away by, and this is somebody I wanna get on the show. I'm testing the waters to see because I think people are gonna have a seizure about this. Um, but my boy Jordan Peterson, man, his book Maps of Meaning, I thought, and he wrote this like a while ago, uh, but I was really, really blown away by this book. Uh, and if you've read Joseph Campbell and think Joseph Campbell is powerful, I think you're gonna see that he picked up the torch and has run with it. I think Maps of Meaning was really, really extraordinary. Um, I'm trying to think, oh, Gulag Archipelago. If you haven't read that, read that. That book is terrifying, to say the least. It is a true story about Russia in like what, the 20s or the 50s, something like that. Uh, so scary to think that humans are capable of that. Again, it's not the kind of book that I would put on my reading list, but those two are awesome. Uh, Larry. In your opinion, what is the best way to speed up my business knowledge? I have an almost seven-figure practice. I'm killing myself trying to learn faster. I've read the amazing E-Myth book, but now need advice on how to set up my systems and scale. Okay, well, the bad news is setting up systems to scale is entirely specific to your industry. So I'm gonna answer the first part of the question, which is how do you speed up your business knowledge? So nothing is gonna speed you up faster than taking some portion of your day to research uh, the industry, research who's doing it well, depending on what your area of expertise is within the company, if it's marketing, if it's sales, uh, if it's product, whatever it is, finding somebody that's in that industry that's talking about that. I guarantee there's a podcast, a blog on the subject, YouTube videos, books. Someone is talking about how to kill it in your industry. So going out and reading that, and if they're not talking specifically somehow about your industry, your industry's so niche, then just look at one step higher. So instead of marketing for whatever crazy specific, specific niche you're in, reading about just marketing in general, um, that'll be huge. And then spending the other part of your day just building the business and really looking at what's working and what's not working. I find the thing that really holds people back is either an unwillingness to take risks. So looking at Jeff Bezos, I think he really explains this well, which is if you want to rapidly scale your business, you must experiment. And he says that the growth of your business is directly rel uh, related to the amount of experiments that you do. So how many experiments are you running? If you're running a lot of experiments and you're good at extrapolating the data and figuring out what's actually working and not, then you're going to be able to move and grow your business really, really quickly. The problem is most people don't want to fail. They don't want to take a risk uh, and they don't know how to risk intelligently. 
because uh, we're not talking about termination events where, hey, if this doesn't pay off, then we're out of business. We are not talking about that. So that you definitely want to be really, really careful of. But taking things that are small incremental bets, things that you can try to see if it's going to grow your business and doing a whole lot of those. So you are always learning or winning. That's it. If you do that, then you're going to scale very, very rapidly. All right. Dayton Coons. As I've been introspecting and trying to practice self-awareness, I've discovered that I built my self-worth on being good at X, being right and being liked. Could you recommend a methodology on how to change what you build your self-esteem around? What does the process look like? Uh, thanks. I love the content you're putting out and find so much value in it. Keep it up. Thank you. Okay, so um, what I would do is really pretty straightforward and it's telling yourself that exact story. So if you know that you're building your self-esteem around the wrong things and you want to start repeating in your head that you're going to build your self-esteem around something that is anti-fragile, so you're actually saying these words in your head, hey, that, whatever, oh, right now I feel it. I'm doing that because I want to feel smart. I want to feel right. I want to impress people. So that's not building my self-esteem around something anti-fragile. Something anti-fragile would be being the learner. So if you're going to build your self-esteem around being the learner, you need to repeat that in your head. I'm the learner, I'm the learner, I'm the learner. And so that is going to begin to reinforce that. It's going to begin to just constantly refocus you back to being a learner. Then you're going to tell other people that same thing out loud. So what you repeat to yourself and what you repeat to others is really the juice in terms of changing your frame of reference. And ultimately, that's what we're talking about here is changing your frame of reference. And then this is something that I don't talk about nearly enough. So get ready. You want to get really good at emotionally rewarding yourself when you do something that is in alignment with this new vision that you have for your identity or really quite frankly getting good at rewarding yourself anytime you do something that's consistent with the behavior that you want to see in yourself. So that is really, really important and this is something that I don't think people are very good at. We're really good at beating ourselves up and we're really bad at emotionally rewarding ourselves and literally giving yourself a pat on the back and saying, well done, you said you were going to do it, you did it. And if you can get good at that, then it feels good to adhere to that. But if you're never good at it, then you're always waiting for other people to congratulate you, which of course they're going to be terrible at because they're paying attention to themselves and not you. And in fact, the irony of ironies, the thing that they're doing is getting really good at kicking the shit out of themselves. So they're over there not thinking about you, not able to help because they're beating themselves up. You're busy beating yourself up, not thinking about the things that you're doing right. And instead, you're thinking about all the things that you're doing wrong, which is where people spend the vast majority of their time. So again, getting into cognitive behavioral therapy techniques, stopping yourself from having these automatic negative thoughts. So every time you recognize that I'm having a negative thought, you're going to stop yourself. You're going to remind yourself that you're the learner. You're going to remind yourself that you don't need to beat yourself up like that, that it's not moving you towards your goals, so you're going to stop. You're going to remember a time where you did it right, and you're going to be stoked on that. And you're going to say, you know what, I forgive myself for not doing it right this time, and I'm going to get better. I'm going to be grateful for the times that I did get it right. And you're going to focus on that, and you're going to start to allow yourself to really feel good when you get it right. That's not cocky. You're just really feeling good about it. Like it should feel good and you should praise yourself in your head just like you beat yourself up when you do something wrong. You need to take the time to praise yourself. And if you're doing those things over and over and over, because of course it will start, you'll be awkward at it, you'll be bad, it will feel weird to be repeating this stuff in your head. But as you really put the energy on it and use those negative thoughts to be a habit loop trigger for the positive thoughts, and for the things that are on uh, point with 
being, um, when they're aligned with what you're trying to do, then you can really get ahead. So just keep reinforcing that stuff over and over. All right. Brandon Good. How do I overcome my fear of pain, I'm assuming? Uh, how do I overcome my fear of pain? There's times when I get knots in my stomach when I get to work out because I know I'm going to suffer. Why does this scare me and how do I destroy the fear? So why it scares you is almost certainly tied to something in your past, usually something when you're growing up. Uh, it just becomes intertwined in you um, and you've got to now begin to unwind that by building new associations. So what you need to start doing is when you get that fear of the pain, you need to start thinking, dude, this pain, I want this pain. This is literally the stuff I would say in my head. I want this pain. I hunger for it. I long for it. I welcome it like an old friend because it's taking me where I want to go. And I'm going to the gym and I know exactly what my result is. I want to get stronger. I want to look better. I want to live longer. Like whatever the things are that really amp you up. Not the things you think are supposed to amp you up. So if all you give a shit about is six pack abs and you want to look sexy on the beach, awesome. Embrace it because that's the real thing. So don't be aspirational in your ideas. Go with what really at a visceral level gets you amped and welcome that pain as a friend. That is going to help you. This is exactly how I lost 60 pounds. I would get so hungry because <laughs> I did it a dumb way, by the way. I'm not saying this is what you should do, but I, I was essentially using rabbit starvation, which is getting all of my calories almost. I mean, it must've been north of 80% of my calories came from protein. And then on top of that, I was restricting my calories like 1,200 to 1,500 calories a day, day after day after day after day, to the point where I literally, my business partners pulled me aside and said, you no longer have a personality, okay? That's how bad it got. But what I was saying in my head was, I welcome this hunger like an old friend. And so I would get excited. Welcome back. I know that now that I'm feeling this hungry, I know I'm getting exactly what I want. I'm losing the fat. It, was, it made it so much easier to deal with and so anytime where I know that I'm gonna to have to suffer to get something I want, I welcome the suffering like an old friend. And it, it sounds stupid, but when you're repeating that in your head and you think of that suffering as a friend, it will change your relationship. Brand, up, oh, Daniel Breeze. What is up, Daniel Breeze? Hi, Tom. How do you determine when you should learn a certain skill in order to execute on a task? Or if you should delegate the task to someone who has that skill? All right, so if you're in a company where you have the ability to delegate, you wanna ask yourself, is this something that only I can do? If it's something only you can do, then do it, don't delegate it. If it can at all be delegated, do it. Have somebody else take that thing and run with it. Now, obviously, then you get into like realities of balancing workload and all that, but I'm assuming like if you have somebody to delegate to and it doesn't, it isn't something that only you can do, then absolutely delegate it so that you're doing the things that only you can do. You always wanna be doing things that are the best and highest use of your time. And especially if you're the leader of the group or the company, Absolutely 100% you wanna be in that position, first of all, because part of what you need to do is free yourself up to think, to strategize, and this is something that I learned from Warren Buffett where he talked about 80% of his time he tries to leave unprescheduled so that he can really think that he can get his head wrapped around what he needs to do and all of that. I think that is critically, critically important. So I highly, highly encourage you, if you don't need to be the one doing it, outsource it. Now, Sometimes I will do things just to make sure that I know enough about it so that I can effectively delegate it, but that's a little nuance for that. I'll leave that as my answer. All right, this is our last one. 
Chrissy Helmstetter. Tom, when you're listening to books and do many other things at the same time, how do you capture notes and then gather all the information together? I cannot picture you sitting still at a desk with headphones and a writing tablet, but I'm willing to be wrong. Okay, so I probably do, um, right now I'm in a, a bad phase because I'm just like the, the hours that we're clocking to do the comic book are literally insane. And P.S. I cannot believe how few people know that we are, we consider ourselves a media studio. Um, so we do two veins of content, the nonfiction that you're watching or listening to right now. And then we do the fiction stuff, which our first comic book is coming out in October, uh, which we're hoping to turn into film and TV. So you're going to be hearing more and more about that. Um, but yeah, so anyway, because of right now, putting out this first comic is taking an inordinate amount of time and energy. Um, I am probably about 80% of my reading is done while doing something else. That's something else. I try to be something I can put on autopilot. So um, working out, I do pretty much on autopilot, which is why I don't uh, look like a bodybuilder. Um, and then cooking is another thing that I can do on autopilot, which is where I do a lot of my reading. Um, things like that, uh, driving, riding in a car. But like if I'm riding in a car, for instance, then I really will take notes. Um, but I, I just have a strategy where I use Audible. So if I get to the point where they say something and I really want to remember it, I do the little audio clips that Audible lets you do. And then I take a quick note just to remind myself to go back um, and listen to it. So I'll put like a subject heading essentially to the book clip. And then um, I try to, when I'm not working as many insane hours, then I'll do 50% of my time is where I'm really taking diligent notes on something. Um, so yeah, I, I call it in my ideal scenarios about 50-50 um, and yeah, so I do take notes whenever I can and I will stop what I'm doing. So if I'm working out and I really think it's important to take a note and I will just stop what I'm doing and, and take that note. Um, but it's not so much that I typically only read in those transitional moments. It's just that I try to occupy all of my transitional moments with reading because I would rather do that and be in a position to take subpar notes, but at least get the ideas in my mind to begin to think about them and uh, play with them in my head um, than to not read at all. So um, yeah, that's, so if you think of me as reading sort of 2x what the normal person reads um, versus all of my time being spent reading in a subpar way, uh, that's probably closer to the truth. All right, there you have it. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. By the way, today's episode was brought to you by No BS, What Would It Take? And also, for anybody um, who's interested in getting one of these bad boys, you can go to shop.impacttheory.com, self-signal your way to success. And if you're intrigued by what I was saying about the comic books, by the way, um, go to at IT Comics on Instagram. You can follow what we're doing there. I'm super excited about that. Um, only do that though if you're actually interested in that medium. Um, so yeah, because it's all comics all the time over there. And then if you feel that this is added value and you want to say a thank you in some way, it would mean the absolute world to us if you would go and subscribe. That would be huge. Subscribing to a podcast is a big deal. It helps us more than you know. It's how we move up in the rankings and reach more people, which is just absolutely massive to us. Um, so, you know, we do all of this for free and our whole thing is we just want to help as many people as humanly possible. So if you went and subscribed, that would mean the world. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.
Hey everybody, thank you so much for listening. And if this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, rate and review us. That helps us build this community. And that is what we are all about right now, building this community as big as we can to help as many people as we can deliver as much value as possible. And you guys rating and reviewing really helps with that. All right, guys, thank you again so much. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.